0: They've gone. You've got to get them back. Come on, I'm they've back. gone. Screwless, let them go. Savannah's take them. They're in the nothing. Come on. Oh, you've got to help me. Come on, you've got to help Is me get them me- back.
1: Of the Mad Max Minute where there's just no rest for the wicked in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick.
0: And I'm Julia.
1: And today we're talking about Minute 68, which begins with Screwloose hatching a subversive plan, and it ends with Max approaching the edge of the nothing. When we left off yesterday, we were talking about Max having tied up the folks that were trying to leave, and I want to jump back into that minute real quick, because as we scan past all the people tied up, we see Max sitting by a fire with Sally Ann, and Max is eating something. And I don't know if it's a part of the pig that the hunters killed earlier, if it's something smaller like a rabbit. But he's eating something hot and meaty, and I'm pretty sure this is the first time we've ever seen Max eat a hot meal.
0: Oh, like ever in our whole knowing Max.
1: So I'm thinking back to the first movie. He had that bagel, possibly waffle.
0: Yeah, and he pulled that out of the toaster. It was hot.
1: Okay. And then later on in that movie, he had an apple. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the last time he ate in that movie that I can remember. And then in Road Warrior, it was just dog food. Mm Mm-hmm. That he ate. And then earlier in this movie he had a piece of fruit. Yep. So while it might not be the first time he's eaten a hot meal in the entirety of this movie, it's the first time since the end of the world.
0: Certainly. And not only that, but it's the first time in this movie that he's eaten anything except fruit.
1: Something substantial. Right. That actually has some protein and there good stuff are
0: to it. a couple more mentions of Max eating fruit in the novelization. More than what we see in the movie. That's very true. In the movie, we get him up in Auntie's penthouse eating fruit. And there are, I believe, two mentions of him eating fruit with the waiting ones. So he's had a lot of fruit. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure that he's very happy to have something else. Something hot, something meaty. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm not saying that we need to have a Brad Pitt and Ocean's Eleven situation where we're seeing Max eat in every scene he's in, but it is nice that we do get to see some instances in each movie of Max actually sustaining himself with stuff to eat.
0: I think it's an important detail of a post-apocalyptic movie to show us how they eat and what they eat and Mm -hmm. maybe give us a little bit about how they acquire food or showing us like they do in this movie that the upper echelons of society get fresh food while everybody else who knows what they eat. Right. They have radioactive water.
1: Radioactive water and rats. Yep. In this scene specifically we get a cinema sin call out it's been a long time since I mentioned them but they call out Max for thinking that no one is going to set the levers free because the Waiting Ones have known this group of people all of their lives, as opposed to Max, who they've only known for a day or so. But I feel like that sin ignores the fact that so many of the regular tribe the Waiting Ones were on Slake's side.
0: I actually agree with that sin. Even if the majority were on Slake's side, just because they're on Slake's side doesn't mean they're on Max's side. Mm-hmm. Yes, they have a loyalty to Slake, they have a loyalty to Savannah, nobody feels any kind of loyalty barely even the monkey feels loyalty to max max makes a comment in the novelization about the monkey that the monkey comes to max for food and then once he's satisfied he goes off to play with the young ones Mm -hmm. and max says i don't blame him sometimes i don't even like my own company so max is barely on his own side and even if some of the kids who were indeed on slake's side even they would have some kind of sympathy or loyalty to this group of five people and would at the very least, want to see them set free. Right. They may not have the forethought to say, oh, if I set them free, they're just going to run off anyways. But someone that you have looked up to and known your whole life, do you really want to see them tied up in a painful position
1: Yeah. You all don't,
0: night long?
1: You don't necessarily want to untie them so they specifically can leave the camp, but you would want to untie them so mm-hmm. that way they're not scrunched up in a ball. Right. That type of thing. Speaking of Sally Ann, though, we go for a max eating at the tail end of Monday's Minute. We scan mm-hmm. down to Sally Ann, who's sitting next to Max, and then we track up along a rock. And at the top of that rock, which is the top of today's minute, we can see Screwloose leering over and looking into this area where the others have been tied up. And this is the first time we've seen him since the 747 scene. He wasn't hanging around during the argument.
0: Right, we haven't seen him since he was perched up on the tail fin. Mm -hmm. Screwloose, we've talked a lot about him. We have lots of ideas about his personality, maybe his history, how he likes to do his thing and how he likes to run his world. But in reality, we know nothing about him. Exactly. We can only guess at his motivation for being here. He does not look very comfortable. He looks like he is working to go outside his comfort zone to do this, but why he does it to me is a complete mystery.
1: Yeah, he wasn't involved in the argument. We didn't see what side he fell down on. It very well could be that he was convinced, personally, during the argument, to side with Savannah and just didn't come forward because there was a lot of human interaction going on. People butting heads and whatnot.
0: It's quite possible that he never had any intention of coming forward. Mm -hmm. That he would have just followed at a distance.
1: Yeah, Screwloose strikes me as the kind of person who doesn't like other people normally, So when they're fighting and shouting at each other and threatening each other, he especially doesn't like them, so Mm -hmm. to speak.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right about here, after we see Max eat, but before it's the next morning and Anna Goanna wakes him up, there's another scene in the novelization.
1: Somewhere in that white.
0: Yes. Max is falling asleep by the fire. He notes a little bit how unusual it is that he doesn't need to sleep with one eye open that for the first time in quite some time he feels really relaxed and at some point he wakes up and in his waking up he says jesse's name out loud really yes and he notes that it's the first time he has said her name out loud in 20 years So Max gives us a time frame. It's been 20 years since she and Sprague died. He also, there's quite a bit of exposition in there. It kind of sounds like maybe George Miller was going for covering his butt on Mad Max, the original 79. That if you didn't watch it, here's basically what happened. Yeah. That biker gangs were terrorizing the roads, that Max had a job to do to protect the people that he cared about and the same the same group murdered both his wife and child and his best friend mm-hmm. and how he couldn't stop them and how guilty he feels over that and how he is worried that he has now become just like them exactly what you were talking about on monday and it perfectly encapsulates what he feels He also compares his tragic life and its events to the Waiting Ones. Mm -hmm. Max with his wife and child, had so much potential for their future. And it was something that they just had to go out and get. They just had to take it. And he feels, from his point of view, he failed. He couldn't just take it. He lost it. And it was taken away from him. So he equates that with the waiting ones who have this potential future of Tomorrow land that they think is just going to be wonderful and it is taken away from them. So he definitely has sympathy and empathy empathy for them he knows what it feels like to have this dream of potential taken away so he definitely sees what they're going through and understands and it finishes up with kind of oddly he just goes back to sleep yeah one thing i wanted to say too he cries. Oh. Yeah, he is thinking about Jesse and Sprague, and he, he talks about Sprague, he calls him the miracle that he and Jesse created together. And he, like, wipes his eyes and finds that they're wet. Wow. Yeah. It was really quite a deep moment for Max. Definitely see why they did not put that in the movie. It really wouldn't translate very well. I don't think we necessarily needed the exposition of that he had a family and what happened to them. Just go back and watch the first movie. But yeah, it ends in... His him laying back down, going back to sleep, and then in the morning is woken up by Anna Goena.
1: That definitely sounds like something that fits better in a novelization, though. Yes. Because you're able to get inside of a character's head like that. If they had done that scene in the movie, they probably would have had to do some sort of dream wave transition to footage of the first movie or something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe done a weird voiceover or him talking out loud to himself, and it just wouldn't be the same.
0: No, I don't think that would have gone over very well. And there's quite a bit of it. It's like two pages in the novelization.
1: So extensive.
0: It is extensive.
1: Yeah. I think that's one advantage of a novelization you just have that perspective that you can't do visually. Exactly. Back in the movie, though, as I mentioned before, we have a single wipe that brings us to Screw Loose spying the people tied up to Max being woken up in the morning. And it's Anna Goanna who walks over to Max and starts shaking him awake.
0: This whole scene between Max and Anna Goanna... I love it so much. The way he reacts to her is priceless. He is already exasperated with this group that are just fighting him every step of the way. And then to be woken up in this way. And as soon as Max shows any sign of life, Anna is just yapping. Just talking, 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 talking. And he's still mostly asleep. He can't make heads or tails of what she is talking about. He throws up his hands. He throws his blanket in her face. Well.
1: She starts shaking him and he's startled awake. He grabs her hand. He lurches awake. It's what I would assume is probably how most people wake up in the wasteland.
0: (laughs) Because you're either
1: being woken up by a disturbance or you're waking up on your own knowing that you're probably surrounded in an ambush. Yeah. I feel like being out in the wasteland is probably a constant state of panic, which is what drives people crazy. But I appreciate the night before, at least in the book, that he's like, oh, I can finally relax. And then he wakes up in the morning not relaxed because someone is shaking him
0: yeah which
1: usually means a shake down so anna starts in by saying they've gone you've got to get them back come on they've gone playing the pronoun game
0: i suppose so i think it's pretty obvious who they are right they are the ones who tried to go yesterday and they are the ones that you stopped going yesterday
1: and so she reveals that it was screw loose who let them go and then she says Savannah's taken them and I have to wonder if the phrase Savannah's taken them goes back to Anna's rivalry with Savannah where Anna would look at the situation and be like oh Savannah has taken these people it's not that these people left with Savannah no they were taken
0: I think perhaps she doesn't mean it so menacingly I think she means it in a more roundabout way that Savannah has led them away Savannah has convinced them to leave Mm -hmm. doesn't leave savannah innocent in coercion but she didn't force them to leave so kind of a middle ground that anna goanna chooses to see more on a forceful side than not because she doesn't have the greatest relationship and Gecko is among the group. Exactly. The movie has not made any kind of a deal about Anna Goanna and Gecko. But once again, it is made a big deal in the novelization. Anna Goanna is waking up Max because Gecko is gone.
1: In the storybook, they specifically mention that Anna is upset that Gecko would leave without her.
0: Oh, yeah. That's not really outlined, that's not said explicitly in the novelization. That's
1: sad. Mm -hmm. So Anna continues saying that they are in the nothing and that Max needs to come on and that he's got to help. He's got to get them back. And then Anna Goanna very helpfully lists all the people that have left, saying Savannah and Gecko, one of the few times we actually hear Gecko's name said. I think it's only like three or four times over the course of the movie. But she mentions Savannah and Gecko, adding that Gecko can barely walk. She then adds Little Finn, Mr. Skyfish, and Kusha, who's going to pop any day now.
0: (laughs) That does make me wonder about their gynecological skills. Mm Mm-hmm. How do they know she's going to pop any day? Is it just based on size? I mean, to us, she didn't look that big. They haven't had a ton of experience in this.
1: Well, this is Kusha's second.
0: Yes, and Savannah's had one.
1: So they probably have a good idea of how big Kusha was when she had her first.
0: That's true. So it really is just by comparison.
1: Yeah. Personal observation mm-hmm. at work. But as you said before, Anna is rousing Max. Max is very sluggish and grumpy. He throws his blanket off of himself and it goes right into Anna's face. Very haphazard with his movements. And she's there the whole time poking him, prodding him, trying to make him go faster.
0: Anna definitely feels an urgency about this situation that Max does not. Hmm. Which contradicts a little bit how he was acting the night before he forcefully stopped them from leaving and Mm -hmm. now that they have left he's not showing a sense of urgency to deal with that situation it's a little bit contradictory but at the same time i kind of get it like okay i did all i could yeah all right down to assaulting the leader and tying them all up if they still insist on leaving well then I'm going to throw my hands up.
1: At what point do you just let people do what they want?
0: Well, before you... Kidnap them and tie them up before that point.
1: It might just be going back to Max's cop days where he's got to put in his due diligence to prevent something from happening. And he more or less used his cop training to apprehend the people that were trying to do something, throw them in jail. And you know what? They got out of jail and did what they were going to do anyway. And at Mm -hmm. that point, he can't change the past. What's done is done. So him moving faster is not going to magically make them reappear in the camp. Like, yes, him moving faster will get to the point where he can bring them back but i can definitely understand why max is maybe not hustling to catch up
0: yeah i definitely understand it makes for some great visual moments Mm -hmm. anna drags max across the desert towards the wreck of the 747. And we get to see all of the waiting ones perched up on the edge of the dune above. And she's dragging him along with all her might. And finally, he like reluctantly goes into a trot. And his body language, they're walking away from us, we can't see their faces. But his body language is excellent. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And we get a lot of emotion and attitude Out of his body language.
1: (laughs) We get a couple of fades. One to get them to the running past the wreckage thing. And another fade that brings us to Max and Anna walking through a grouping of the waiting ones.
0: As Max is joining the group of waiting ones, their behavior is quite odd Yeah. They are perched up on top of this dune. It feels like this is as far as they are willing to go. That there is this line in the sand, if you will, that they will not cross. And they're more body language stuff. They are very still and they're just staring out into the nothing and they're doing this weird moaning thing. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly uncomfortable. It's almost supernatural. Like something has taken them over. Like almost zombie-like. The way that they're doing this, it's very, very unsettling and it's a very creepy way to end this minute.
1: Yeah. I was thinking about this whole thing. Them standing stock still, staring out into the nothing, doing this moan that's very reminiscent accent of a wailing wind. And the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. This tribe that deifies wind and flight and things like that, it makes sense that they would hear the sound of the desert blowing in through the dunes, through the crack in the earth, and they would hear it. And so as they stand looking out into the Great Nothing, they're repeating what they've heard the desert say. I'll use that kind of verbiage. Mm -hmm. The desert is speaking to them, and so they in turn are speaking back to the desert. It reminds me of something that was said in the storybook that was not covered in the movie. When they talk about the ones who have taken a leaving during the story wall segment, Savannah mentions the idea of standing on the edge of the nothing and singing songs of luck, singing to the desert on behalf of the people who have left as sort of a prayer or an invocation or something like that. And I would hazard a guess that the moaning that these children are doing is akin to them asking the desert, to bring their people back. Showing the desert that they can mimic its voice and that the people out in the desert should be led back to them.
0: I also thought of the idea that they're doing this now because this is how they say goodbye to their Mm leavers. Well, some of them would have liked to prevent this group from taking their leaving. They took their leaving and that's just the way it is now. So they are going to do what they do when people take their leaving. They stand on the edge of the dune and they sing their songs and they sing say goodbye, they say good luck, they invoke the wind and the nothingness to bring their people back to them. They have this ritual of how they say goodbye. And since they can't stop these people from leaving, they're going to do the ritual. Yeah, because that's what they do.
1: Because at the end of the day, the waiting ones have a very specific religion, they have a very specific belief system, and then they cling very tightly to it.
0: And that has been thrown into upheaval as of late. But there are still elements that they still can cling to. You mentioned that they deify the wind, and comparing that to the Christian religion, God and Jesus Christ aren't the only things that we deify. There are other elements that have special meanings that are ritualistic and that can be considered divine. So it's the same in this religion that they have created and that they live by that other elements of their world participate in that religion. And that's the wind, definitely. And I think the nothingness also is a part of their religion.
1: Since we're talking about wind and sound, it got me wondering about the whole why does wind howl question in my mind. Because when you're in a wooded area, like the New England area here in the United States, there are a lot of trees, and as the wind blows through the trees, you hear the rustling of leaves, and you hear the wind howl every once in a while if it's going fast enough. And there are no trees in the desert. It's one of the defining characteristics of a desert is that there's very little vegetation. So why, I asked, does the wind howl in the desert? Well, The reason wind howls in the first place is because vibrations in air produce sound. So as long as you've got the wind causing vibrations, you're going to have sound. And while there are no trees, there are dunes. And so the wind whips down, it gets pushed around by these dunes, and it flows. Air is a gas. Gases behave like liquids when they come in contact with solids, and so they're flowing. And these gases are getting sent by the curvature of the dune into different trajectories. And as these trajectories go forward, they collide with other sections of air that have different densities. And as they collide with these other densities, they bounce back and forth against each other, and they create these little vortices that are called, according to a video I saw on YouTube, von Karman vortices. And they're kind of like eddies made in the water. When you draw your hand through the water, they whip and twirl around. And so it's these vortexes at the tops of dunes and at the bottom of valleys that create these moaning wind effect sounds. So when you're out in the desert and you hear the moaning of the wind, it's because it's moving up and over and around things, vibrating the air in a certain frequency.
0: That's really interesting because the waiting ones, they inhabit or frequent different types of landscapes. So they've got the desert up where the crashed plain is and the dune just beyond where they get that type of wind moaning. But then they also inhabit this isolated, this encapsulated rock formation pool area that is going to have its own type of wind and own type of moaning. Mm -hmm. So different places and different sounds mean different things and have different places in how they practice their religion. So out here on the dune saying goodbye, this is the type of send-off that they get, because that's the type of wind sound that they get out there.
1: It's kind of cool when you think about it. It's definitely not something that's given a lot of thought in the movie, though.
0: No, not at all. And this moaning is where we cut off in this minute, and it's going to continue into next minute, and we're going to get a little bit more interaction with the moaning. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think we're going to delve into its meaning anymore, but we're going to see how it affects other people. Yeah
1: people who may not be used to it Mm -hmm. to hearing it and the significance behind it but there'll be plenty of time to talk about that on friday so when we come back on friday we're going to see max get an update on the situation from slake and of course the kids are going to look to max for what they should do next though max will at first be reluctant he will give in to his better nature and eventually decide to help out The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
0: Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers.
1: Join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link.
0: Thank you for joining us for Minute 68 of Beyond Thunderdome. We'll see you next time.